Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting July 16th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, something for the complete idiots out there, me included. We'll talk with Scientific American editor George Musser, who is not a complete idiot. Plus, we'll test your knowledge about some recent science in the news. George Musser is our resident astronomy and physics editor. He's the author of the brand new book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to String Theory. To become something less than a complete idiot, I spoke to George in the library at Scientific American. What is string theory? I mean, everybody's heard of string theory. I think it's been on the cover of Time magazine, probably, or Newsweek, mm-hmm. certainly on our covers. And everybody talks about it as some kind of newfangled big deal in physics, which it is. What is it? That's a good, that's a good question. Um, because the theory itself is being developed by scientists. It's not a fully formed theory. So what I'll tell you, the summary version I'll give you, is the current level of understanding. But what's so wonderful about string theory is it seems to open up new levels even below that. One of the things in your book that I had Uh not seen before was that string theory really goes back about 80 years. The first formulation was back in the 20s. Yeah, even a lot of most string theorists don't realize that. This is something Steve Weinberg, the Nobel laureate physicist, actually pointed out in a talk that I kind of plucked and put in the book that the concept of string theory goes way back. Because most physicists think it started in the 70s. Yeah, it started in the late 60s. But it was one of those things that was invented and then forgotten and then re-invented actually isn't even the word. It's more discovered. It was stumbled upon as a potential theory, not even of everything as it's now portrayed, but as a theory of, of nuclear forces. It didn't work out for that. It was rebranded as a theory of everything, everything meaning everything, electricity, magnetism, matter, space, gravity, you name it. It's supposed to be in theory, in the string theory at some level. So the basic idea is that when you zoom in on matter, you zoom in, you see molecules, and then you zoom in on the molecules, you see atoms. You keep on zooming, you see the particles in the atom. Protons, neutrons, electrons. Precisely. And then you zoom in on, for instance, a proton, it turns, you zoom in and you see quarks. And then you keep on zooming, and those quarks, according to string theory, are actually teeny, teeny, teeny little strings that are vibrating and moving around. And the beauty of the theory is that one type of thing, namely a string, can vibrate in different ways and give you different types of particles. It can give you a up quark, down quark, an electron, photon, the whole zoo of particles that have been discovered. What does that give you other than a felicitous kind of aesthetic feeling about the universe that it's all connected together in some kind of unified whole? Well, of course, I wouldn't look down on a felicitous aesthetic view of the universe. No, I think absolutely that's, that's not. Important. No, I'm, deal, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm being facetious mm-hmm. a little bit. But a lot of the big breakthroughs in physics over the past hundreds of years have come from unification, have come from trying to bring together that which had seemed so impossible to bring together. It seemed disparate. Electricity and magnetism were unified in the theory of electromagnetism. Um, one thing actually we take for granted today, which is that the stars and planets follow the same laws that we observe on the Earth, was really a unification that, that Newton did. 
Prior to that, people had separated those two realms, and Newton unified them into a single theory of motion and of universal gravitation. And in turn, when you boil everything down and unify it, then you can build up again, and you can see how many new phenomena you had no idea even existed. So Newton opened our eyes to all the motion of the universe and the ways that planet systems can form in galaxies and beyond galaxies. I mean, one of the great things about the book is that it, it goes off on a lot of digressions, as you just did, because you really do need a background in the entire history of physics to a, to a certain degree to understand string theory, even at a relatively rudimentary level. But what is it now that, that string theory is trying to accomplish that has remained unaccomplished? So I bring up those other examples as just historical like scene setting to this, but string theory has similar consequences in terms of bringing things together and then opening our eyes to new things. So the mere act of bringing together gravity and quantum mechanics, that was Einstein's dream. That's a major accomplishment because the theory of gravitation, which is Einstein's theory and quantum theory, seems just so completely incompatible. They're used today in conjunction. They will be applied like first the one, then the other, but they're not actually used together in any in any deep sense. So that already is a conceptual breakthrough. Uh, those two theories approach the world in such a different way that to unify them um, gives you something you didn't have before. And then there's a whole like stream of possible phenomena. None has really been proved or observed, but that are predicted by the theory. For instance, other dimensions of space and time, uh, other universes that could be out there, um, different particles in our own universe that we're oblivious to right now, but which might be discovered at, for instance, a Large Hadron Collider when it starts up later this year. Right. Like you talk in the book about what would it feel like if a sentient being in one of these other dimensions actually tried to touch you. Yeah. And you allege that you would have some sort of sensation, but you wouldn't really know what it was. Yeah, that's the amazing thing about extra dimensions is they feel just so magical, the kinds of things that um, would, to us, appear just like hocus-pocus would be possible in in extra dimensions, and that also feeds into some of the physics as well. But your example of if you had a multi-dimensional being or force, doesn't have to be actual intelligence, tap you on the shoulder, you would look around you and you wouldn't see it by definition because it wouldn't exist in the dimensions that you have access to, that you can observe. So it would feel to you as some ineffable force acting on you. You couldn't localize it, but it would still be there. And that actually comes up in theories of cosmology, for example. If, for instance, the forces that... Uh, may have caused the universe to ex expand very early in the in the history of our universe. They seem to require a force that lacks direction. It has no directionality to it. It's called a scalar field in the jargon. And that's precisely the kind of thing you might get from an extra dimension. You would get a, a directionless type of force acting on you. So that's the type of thing string theory might give you. I should point out that there are other explanations for scalar fields as well, but string theory does seem to give those naturally to you. All right, so let's review. Just basically, okay. string theory says that there are many dimensions that we are not aware of in our three-dimensional world of perception, mm -hmm. and that all the fundamental particles are actually tiny little strings that are vibrating in different ways from each other. 
So I'd say, I would actually phrase it a little differently than that. I would take the, the second idea is the primary one. And the dimensions are actually derived from that. It isn't as though someone was sitting around one day at the bar and saying, hey, wouldn't it be great to have 10 extra dimensions of space? These actually just fall out of the theory naturally. If you didn't have them, the strings couldn't vibrate in a consistent way. You might, for instance, have reversals of cause and effect, where you the string would react to you before you touched it. That might occur if the string didn't have these extra dimensions to, to play in, to act, to vibrate in, to, to move in. Now, early in, in the history, the modern history of string theory formulations, there were some physicists who really didn't like string theory because it wasn't testable enough to be, other than in their opinion, kind of philosophical musings, and they thought it wasn't even really science. And how has the field progressed since then? Well, it's kind of, it's been a to and a fro, kind of a ping pong effect. A lot of the criticism of string theory even today comes down to that same question of, is it testable? And that's actually a criticism, as I try to discuss in the book, not specific to string theory. It's also true of the various alternatives to string theory. And one thing that I think I try to do in the book that other books haven't done so much is to really address those theories as well. Although the book is entitled Idiot's Guide to String Theory, it's also an idiot's guide to loop quantum gravity, to causal dynamical triangulations, to the other Super types symmetry. of... symmetry. Right. right. Exactly. Little idiot's guides Little within idiot, the book. Little idiot's guides within the book. So the problem is that gravity is very weak as we experience it. So that implies, just as a matter of course, as an empirical fact, that the unification of gravity with other quantum forces must occur at very, very, very short distances. This isn't a failing of string theory. This isn't a failing of loop quantum gravity or anything else. It's a fact of the world. So quantum gravity, of which string theory is an example, is distant to exp from experiment. And that's just, we have to live with that fact. So that's a lot of the criticism of string theory isn't specific to string theory. It's bemoaning this fact of nature that quantum gravity is just such a distant phenomenon. So I think it's important to separate those questions, that there are criticisms of string theory per se, but this most common one about lack of experimental test isn't about string theory per se. It's, again, a, a broader criticism. Yeah, most people might be surprised that gravity is so weak because it's the one we really experience. And if you fall down a flight of stairs, which I have done, gravity doesn't seem so weak. Yep, exactly. It's, it, it is ironic. And it is actually I do have a, a short discussion in the book about how did I put it? If gravity is so weak, why does it hurt so much when I fall? And the reason is it's fairly straightforward is that gravity is a cumulative force. For instance, electrical and magnetic forces have offsetting contributions. You might have a positive and a negative charge or a north pole and a south pole. Those things tend to cancel out. And anytime you have whole bunch of electrons together, they tend naturally to draw in positive charges to neutralize them. So electromagnetism is self-negating in that way, whereas gravity is not. Gravity only adds. It only adds up. There's only essentially positive gravitational charge. So you just, in case of the Earth, have so many protons, neutrons, electrons, and other particles in the Earth, and they all add up producing what we experience as a fairly large gravitational force. I should point out that large as though it is, we are still able to resist it. 
we can still maintain our, our integrity. We can avoid falling downstairs. Uh, we can lift things up off a table. And when we lift a book off a table, we are opposing the entire might of the earth to do so. So the essential le- electromagnetic forces that let us lift the book are opposing the entire earth's gravitational force. So it's, I think it's 10 to the 39 or some other ungodly large number times more powerful than gravity, electromagnetism. And the strong force of the atomic nucleus is even stronger than electromagnetism. So this is just something we have to live with. Um, that implies in turn that whatever unifies gravity with other types of particles and other types of forces occurs at very, very short distances. Those are kind of the flip side of that. These are distances that are not only too small to see, they're too small to even uh, perceive with an electron microscope. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is just they're way orders out. and orders of magnitude smaller than the smallest thing you can visualize with our best microscopic technology. Right. And they're, even our best microscope or in a sense, microscope is the Large Hadron Collider, the one being built or one about to start up really now in Switzerland. And it can penetrate to, I think it's 10 to the minus 19, 10 to the minus 20 meters. In effect, it's a microscope down to those distances. And the Planck scale, the scale which strings seem to operate or these other types of entities, is another 10 to the 15 times smaller. It's 10 to the minus 35 meters. I should point out just uh, as a caveat that strings might be a bit bigger than that, strictly speaking. But usually people are talking about 10 to the minus 34, 10 to the minus 35 meter in size. So it's not something we're ever going to be able to see directly. In the case of atoms, we can see them now using uh, various kinds of microscopes. But a string will never be directly visible to us. So you have to come at it indirectly. So I think the way I describe it in the book is you tell a physicist, hey, you're never going to be able to observe strings. Sorry. And what's their first reaction? Ah, I've got to find a way to observe strings. They take it as a challenge. So I actually have a list of 10 possible ways not to observe strings, not even to prove that they exist, but to test the idea. And I think that's the way science usually works. You don't ever disprove something strictly or, or prove something strictly. It's always sort of like, I think you've tilted it for or against. It's a balancing act. So slowly over time, we tend to bring something, uh, more and more evidence for something until we reach a point where ah, it must be true. Or conversely, we pile up so much negative evidence, we say, ah, can't really be true. Yeah, it's, I always think of it as a, a long legal case with an accretion of evidence so that you finally come to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt about something. Right, exactly, exactly. What is the Large Hadron Collider actually going to enable us to start to to see in concrete terms what kind of evidence is it going to supply that we haven't had before that could play into our uh, acceptance of string theory or any of the competing unification ideas yeah the large hadron collider will really be the most closely watched instrument in science in physical science at least over the next few years it's actually the most expensive scientific instrument of any sort ever built it, it involves, it's just a tour de force of engineering and of organization and computing and, and all the rest. So I'm, all, I'm really excited about it. It's not specific to string theory, of course. It's, it's meant generally to probe beyond the current standard model of particle physics. And I want to emphasize that because the standard model of particle physics is pretty much at the end of its rope when it comes to the energies probed by the Hadron Collider. Something has to happen 
at the Hadron Collider. There has to be some new physical process of some sort or other that current theories can't handle. There's just too many loose threads in the standard model, and they all seem to kind of begin to matter. They begin to affect observational predictions at the energies probed by that Hadron Collider. So number one, whatever comes out of the Hadron Collider will be a guide to unification of physics, be it string theory, be it one of these other theories I've mentioned. Now, there are specific types of phenomena that string theory would prove, would uh, would predict that the Hadron Collider might see. Now, it's again, as I emphasized earlier, it's not a question of strictly proving or strictly disproving string theory. That's beyond even the Hadron Collider's ability. It's more of a hint level. And one is called supersymmetry. And this is the idea that um, the two main types of particles in nature, which are basically particles of matter and particles of force. So a particle of matter might be an electron. A particle of force might be a photon, a particle of light. Those are the two kind of families of particles, the two types of particles. And supersymmetry says they're actually united. There's actually, in essence, one type of particle that has these different manifestations, be it of matter or be it of force. So the electron is related like a family relationship to the photon, which is related to other types of particles as well. And that is a prediction of string theory seems to be required, though not strictly required, but seems to be required by the behavior of these little strings and probably would be observable at the Hadron Collider. And you would see it because you'd see a whole new gaggle of particles just start to pop out of thin air when they start to collide these particles at the collider. So you're going to smash the protons together. They spew out countless other types of particles that we know of and hopefully that we don't know of. That's the whole purpose is to find something we don't know, some of which may be these supersymmetric particles. Bottom line, the discovery or non-discovery of supersymmetry of the Hadron Collider will be a huge clue. It's just going to be the elephant in the room holding the, the, the dagger clue. The elephant in the room holding okay. the dagger. It's so the elephant metaphor. did it. The elephant did it. Exactly. It's so, a mixed metaphor, but whatever. So um, the uh, results that we see from the Hadron Collider should start coming in pretty soon, actually. Let's see. They're supposed to start up July, so this month. Uh, maybe August. And by the time papers come out with uh, with new particles, if there are any discovered, I mean, they're going to come out pretty quick. Probably, but, you know, they have to take it slowly. Their actual first goal at the Collider is to re- rediscover the standard model. Right. So they're going to just recreate all the models they know. They'll remeasure them. Right. That Can makes you... sure that, that the Collider itself is working properly. And also to really add another decimal place to right. some of the measurements so they can then look for deviations at a finer level than they were before. Now, there are all sorts of exotic predictions that people have made about the the Hadron Collider, about looking for black holes that it might produce, for example, that if they did see, it would just already just be like start handing out Nobel Prizes to the string theorists. Mm -hmm. Now, most people think that's pretty unlikely, even if string theory is true, that those black holes could be found. But the possibilities there. And if they see a black hole already, they just start ticking off names and who they're going to send to Stockholm because it's <laughs> going to be a huge major discovery. Not to mention, it'll be humanity's look into extra dimensions because those black holes, should they be creatable at the, at the Hadron Collider, 
will be an indication that SpaceX has extra dimensions. We're talking about teeny tiny black holes because I know that uh, there are people out there who who are afraid to to press the start button on the Hadron Collider because they think it could destroy the world, the whole universe. Yeah, forget the world, universe. The thing about these little black holes, and this is actually something I talk about a lot in the book and which is essential to unifying physics. Little black holes, you have to think of them very differently from the big ones. They're all black holes, but the little ones aren't the monsters that the big ones are. They're kind of tortured souls. They're kind of, they come onto this world and they, they wink out almost as fast as they right. appear. So you shouldn't think of the little black holes as these kind of cosmic monsters who are just going to tear you apart. It's not the doomsday machines. These aren't doomsday machines. These are just, they're going to form and they go pop. Right. Form pop. And they don't pose any threat to us because in order to be created, that very fact that they can be created in a laboratory necessarily implies that they'd also go pop. They'd also destroy themselves almost instantly. So we'll see some, you know, within the next couple of years, we're going to start to see some very interesting things or not come out of the collider. But let me ask you, there's this search for unification. It's been really this dream of physics now for, you know, pretty much a century. Why do physicists believe that there is unification to be found? How do I know that that's the way the universe is? How do I not know that, well, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, this is just the way it is and you have to deal with it. How do I know that this isn't just the way it is and I can't unify gravity with the other fundamental forces and I just have to live in a universe that is aesthetically unpleasing that go that goes on its merry way without unification? I think there's really three ways. One is just that nature itself is a unity. There don't seem to be lines in the sand drawn around our natural phenomenon in the world. Everything seems to just click together. So it suggests that underlying the natural world is a unifying set of principles. Second is really historical example that all in the past, every time we've seen disparate phenomena and that we think are just so completely different, they turn out to have a common cause. They turn out to stem from some unified description of them. And third, there are particular signposts up ahead that tell <laughs> us that there seemed, there seems to be a unity to the particles and even to gravity and particles. For example, if you extrapolate the strengths of the different forces of nature, they stay vary. They're not constant. The electromagnetism strengthens a little bit as you probe to higher and higher energies. The strong force seems to weaken a little bit as you probe to higher and higher energies. Gravity seems to strengthen as you probe to higher and higher energies. These trends among the four main forces of nature all converge they all converge on a point up near this Planck scale I was telling you about earlier. It happens about 10 to the minus 35 meters is the distance or equivalent energy because those two concepts are related mm -hmm. at which all the forces of nature seem to be unified. And what we mean by that is it's not that there's a single set of equations that describe them all so much as they are all the same. Right. At the big, at the point of the big bang, Gravity is electromagnetism, is the strong force, is the weak force. They're, they're this, 
they're force X. They're all exactly the same. And it's only when we get that expansion, then, then the forces themselves also start to separate from each other. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So at the dawn of our universe, and I have to em- emphasize our universe because there could be others. So dawn of our universe, physicists think there was one type of force, one type of matter. And that as the cosmos expanded, as space expanded, it cooled and things started to condense out like snowflakes. And over time, that single force broke. It differentiated and something similar happens in the human body as we develop from, from a single cell. We differentiate different tissues form in our bodies, different layers of tissues. Something similar happened. Physicists think in our universe that over time, a single Ur force somehow differentiated into the four forces that we know today. The two nuclear forces, gravity and electromagnetism. And in turn, electromagnetism seems to differentiate into electricity or magnetism, depending on our own velocity, for example, depending how we, we perceive uh, what our perspective on those, on that force is. So the idea is that because these the forces seem to converge in strength, it's taken as a clue, as a signpost, that they're actually manifestations of a single force. It's not proof, but it's you go with you know go to go to battle with the armor you have. You have to see <laughs> what you've you've got here, um, and it seems to be a clue. What's interesting in particular about that clue is that the two components of it, namely gravity, and then on the one side, and the three quantum forces, electromagnetism and the nuclear forces on the other, act independently in in their convergence. For instance, the forces of electromagnetism. Uh, and the nuclear forces seem to converge, and there are laws of quantum mechanics that dictate that convergence. And they actually are fairly modest in their variation with, with scale or with energy. So they just kind of lackadaisically come together to a point and, and meet. Gravity, which varies hugely with the scale of the energy that you probe it at, just kind of swoops in from afar like a, a falcon and lands exactly where those other three forces are. It just, if that is a coincidence rather than a a deep something that has deep meaning then boy god's really played a trick on us (laughs) so the 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 indications are there there seems to be some unity to nature it's coming out in um, the measurements that scientists can now take well these are certainly interesting times to be a physicist or to follow physics i think so this is just i mean everybody thinks they live in a special time wouldn't it have been great to see Einstein's theory proved in 1919 or demonstrated in 1919? And today we have something similar. So as we see these results come from the Hadron Collider, we're going to see something new. And I think most physicists would just be delighted that they were wrong because then that would open up new doors for them. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories, only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a species of chameleon has been found whose eggs, while the chameleons are in them developing, can change color to match their surroundings. Story two, historians have dated Caesar's invasion of Britain to August 26th and 27th in the year 55 B.C., but a new analysis by astronomers shows that the actual invasion dates had to be earlier. 
Story three, keeping a food diary doubled the pounds taken off by participants in a weight loss program. And story four, after suffering from a stroke, an Ontario woman started to speak with a Newfoundland accent. Time's up. Story four is true. An Ontario woman sounded like a Newfie after a stroke. So-called foreign accent syndrome affects some people who suffer brain damage. Their speech changes to something that listeners think sounds like a foreign accent. In this case, however, the changes are more reminiscent of maritime Canadian English. The case was reported in the Canadian Journal of Neurological Sciences. Story three is true. A study of participants in a weight loss program found that those who simply wrote down everything they ate lost twice as much as those people who just tried to follow the program. The research was published in the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. For more, check out the July 11th edition of the Daily Podcast, 60 Second Science. And story two is true. Because of gravitational forces exerted by the sun and moon, the English Channel would have been flowing the wrong way on the dates usually given for Caesar's invasion of Britain. Caesar's own descriptions of the tides, along with the new astronomical calculations, indicate that he probably invaded Britain four days earlier than the accepted dates of August 26th and 27th, 55 BC. The research appeared in Sky and Telescope magazine. All of which means that story one about a chameleon whose eggs exhibit color mimicry is totally bogus. But what is true is that a species of Madagascar chameleon has been discovered to spend three fourths of its lifespan inside the egg. It then lives free for only four or five months. No other known four-legged animal has such a rapid growth rate after hatching or birth, along with such a short lifespan. Well, that's it for this edition of the weekly Siam podcast. Visit siam.com for the latest science news, content from our magazines, and all our podcasts. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.